well, I guess you probably all had the experience I've had many times over the years. You go to a party, you tell someone what you do. <laughs> Part of me was teach test tests and they'll say something, ah, oh, I had to take that one and say, hey, that you know, was horrible or whatever. It just, it left with really bad feelings about the course of that memory. So it's an incredible challenge we have. You know, we all feel it's so important to make sure we really appreciate why it's important, why they have to take it, but so many people do and don't. This type of course is such a bad reputation. Uh, so, you know, I'm going to try to talk about here this morning is, uh, you know, my experience, I've been taught this sort of thing for 38 years at the University of Florida, my perspective, and mostly focusing on the general type of introductory course you'll see at most American universities, you're writing something specifically for social scientists, so I think most of the same issues arise. And, uh, and I've seen a big change in the basic course from the time I started teaching, when a typical course the typical textbook was like a mathematical statistics course watered down without the calculus, but uh, remained the same emphasis, spending maybe half the course getting through probability and then finally looking at some data and doing uh, some tests and confidence intervals at the end. So uh, I'll show how I think the focus has changed in the U.S. to more of a conceptual course, at least for these large introductory courses that are common in universities. I'll talk a bit about what some topics that have traditionally been in such courses that I think could be eliminated, as well as things that perhaps should receive more attention. So I'm going to be focusing on the large undergraduate course, but to also talk a little bit at the end about uh, the graduate course and how that maybe would be a bit different. Well, first a caveat, I'm trained as a statistician, graduate research in statistics, uh, been in a statistics department, so I think my focus is quite different from from all of you, and a lot of what I say you know, may have limited relevance compared to what Laura will be saying later, uh, but, but I hope still some things in there will be useful to you. In my own uh, time at the University of Florida, where I was for 38 years, I taught a variety of things, starting with uh, very basic service courses for social scientists and more general courses, as well as courses for our own majors at various levels in statistics. And uh, I was in a statistics department in a university of 50,000 students, where over time, uh, well, we had some specialized courses in the early days, but over time we moved towards a very general introductory course that has students from in sociology, psychology, political science, but also business and general, but students from other areas who just need a basic course in math to fulfill a, a quantitative type requirement. Uh, and that, that course focuses primarily on the main ideas of statistics without being very technical. Many students are required to take a follow-up course. Uh, for instance, we have one in our department for social science students. The business school has their own. Education has their own, which is more modeling-based. Primarily multiple regression, but also going up to logistic regression. We also have a two-semester sequence for social science students. Uh, that I started when I was there in 1972. It starts right from scratch because although a lot of students took statistics as undergraduates, they don't remember much or do learn much to begin with. So it starts at the same place but moves a lot more quickly. We also have an art part and many specialized courses for those relatively small number of students who want to go on and learn more. They, they know now about regression, 
they'd like to learn about some specialized methods, maybe not parametrics or multivariate or categorical. So we have a, a set of courses that typically have about 50 or 60 students. About 30 of them would be undergraduate statistics majors, and about 30 of them would be graduate students in the social sciences or, or other areas who just want to be a bit more uh, specialized in methodology. Now, at Florida, anyway, the <clears throat> social science majors have a separate research methods course taught in their own department. And depending on the department, statistics may or may not be a prerequisite for that. I'm not going to try to address that course at all. And in recent years, my teaching was mainly for the graduate level course. So I had about 60 students, not much in the way of TA help, uh, which kind of limited what I could do. Uh, our undergraduate courses have about 2,000 students each semester. Uh, I haven't taught that for about 10 years. The last time I did it, we had three sections, or four sections of about 375 each. And I'd go and give the same lecture four times, basically over the day, and, uh, and then by the end of the semester, I'd be so, uh, you know, mind shot that they'd give the semester off with no teaching. <laughs> but uh, Florida, like a lot of states, has had severe budget problems in recent years. Almost all our large service course teaching is now handled by master's level instructors who aren't on tenure track positions. And in fact, the big introductory course is one live course taught, which is which is uh, recorded, and the overwhelming majority of students just watch on the internet. I think we're sort of heading towards the stage in Florida where in some years there'll just be one live lecture and students at all state universities around the state will be watching that. But the state of Florida will be saving a lot of money. And then we employ a lot of graduate students as teaching assistants who, who uh, meet students in smaller groups to go over homework problems and software and so forth. So as I said, my comments are mainly directed towards the general introductory course, like this large course in Florida. Um, and, and looking at the opinions that I later wrote down, I guess a lot of them reflect what I started to feel as I was teaching this course nearly 40 years ago and, and looking at what was in textbooks for such courses. And, it led to myself trying to have a staff doing the same thing myself. Well, there's one resource that uh, got a lot of attention in the United States when people who teach statistics. Uh, about six or seven years ago, there was a committee set up that, uh, that, that, was, that brought up two sets of guidelines, one for undergraduate teaching and one for pre-college teaching. There's been a big move to try to introduce statistics more in the math curriculum at the high school level, for instance. Uh, and uh, you can go to this website and see their recommendations. It's a whole set of them, a detailed explanation of them. And some of the main ones were we should be emphasizing statistical thinking, and conceptual understanding. Don't let the course just be a recipe where you go through a whole set of different methods and show them all the steps of calculating various statistics and key values. Students need to learn statistics as a process. Unlike math, it's not math. It's not necessarily a unique answer in various ways of approaching a particular problem. There's not some toolkit of formulas that's been around for hundreds of years that they have to learn. Statistics, like any field, is evolving, and what we do now is maybe very different from what we did 30 years ago. Very important to foster active learning. Activities in the classroom, outside the classroom, engaging students in projects where they can do hands on collecting the data, analyzing data on something they're interested in to make it more relevant to them. Use technology, applets, simple software to help not only explain concepts, but uh, uh, so they're not spending all the time worrying about calculating things or calculating. It's not explaining a little while, what I mean by an apple if you're not familiar with that. 
So at the start, explain it's a well-designed study. We can make conclusions to certain debate anecdotes, such as uh, they're telling us that they have an 85-year-old grandfather who smoked a pack of cigarettes every day and never got lung cancer. So, <laughs> uh, of course, variability is so crucial. Explain that in various ways, of course, about uh, uh, how there's uh, unpredictable aspects in the short term, very predictable aspects in the long term, and uh, whether we're doing a controlled experiment or a, a survey, uh, and this is what enables us to, to make our conclusions. And important to explain the limitations of much of what they're going to hear about. Uh, sample surveys, observational data of any type, be skeptical of anything you read about in a paper or hear about uh, on the news or see on the internet, uh, always be thinking about uh, you know, what could have been done better and what other things could have been measured that might have affect, affect the results in particular. Very important to, to talk about how associations can change under appropriate controls and how there's uh, maybe lurking variables out there that could affect things dramatically. Uh, association on applying causation. There's one data set, for instance, I've used in recent years. Uh, a friend of mine is a sociologist who does research on the death penalty and showed the data from several states and it's almost, it's pretty much universally the case. But if you look at uh, defendants in death penalty, defendants uh, MERS, uh, murdering someone for, uh, for possibly being convicted and getting the death penalty, uh, perhaps surprisingly, when you compare white defendants to black defendants, white defendants are more likely to get the death penalty. <coughs> but if you look at it separately for cases where the victim is white, separately with cases where the victim is black, black defendants are much more likely to get the death penalty. So this is something sometimes called Simpson's paradox after a British statistician Simpson that goes all the way back to Yule. 1900 in England, that uh, you can have, a, say, a positive association between X and Y and adjust for a third variable, and it can be negative at every level of that third variable. So, important for them to see things like that and just not always to think that they hear about some association, there's uh, uh, some causal link there. I think a really fundamental concept that's difficult for them but crucial for them to understand in such a course is the sampling distribution. We're going to spend time on inference, as you probably will. It really, if you can, it really helps to spend some time explaining sampling distribution well, making sure we understand that before you get into inference. Uh, significance testing, from my perspective, often is overemphasized. Some of the books I see just have one significance test after another. And they really need to understand the small p-value doesn't mean there's anything important going on. It may not be practical significance. The sample size is large, the true effect could be small. Likewise, if they don't get a small p value, it doesn't mean they can believe it all. Reality could be quite different, especially with a small sample. And uh, focusing on confidence intervals helps them to, 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 to realize that. In the first case, maybe a narrow confidence interval, narrow null hypothesis, suggesting that whatever effect is there is not so important. And the second case, a wide interval that includes both the null and the value is quite far from the null, telling them that reality could be quite different still from the hypothesis. I always like to start class when I could uh, talking about something that was writing the paper that day and, and I'd like to get them to think in terms of critiquing everything they hear uh, about recent studies, you know, what could be wrong with the way the study is conducted and uh, what could be done differently in the future. And we'd really like them to get to understand by the end of the course what's involved in 
doing research appropriately. Now, focus on concepts instead of recipes. You know, part here, um, I think about how if we weren't going to try to cover all the stuff we could cover, it's just enormous. We look at all the possible combinations of things with significant specimen conferences, for instance. You have one, two, many samples, one response, many responses, independent, dependent samples, parametric methods, not parametric, or you one side or two sided inference. A method based on large samples or small samples, you can't do it. So you know, focus on a few of the more, more important cases, and you know, they, if they don't understand the concepts in any case, it's not going to not going to be good to rush try to rush through all these various situations. And in doing so, at least in this large introductory type course, you know, we try to put a lot less emphasis on formulas, um, you know, except for helping explain concepts, like the formula for the variance to explain what variability means, but don't worry about things like shortcut formulas for doing that calculation, because that gives you no understanding. Um, and of course, many students come in with little or very poor algebra skills, and if you can get away from the formulas, that that really helps uh, with this issue. In particular, I always tell students, because so many of them come in at the beginning thinking that we just can't do math, they've had bad experiences, tell them regardless of what happened in the past, they can do well in this course. Uh, they don't really have to be high-powered mathematicians to, to understand and appreciate what you can do with statistics. Now, I know here, a lot of your courses are, are briefer than ours, so it seems especially crucial to try to focus on some of the big ideas so they grasp those before they leave. But exams uh, with very large courses, we often have to primarily have multiple choice questions. That sounds bad, but you can get to understanding and concepts very well with those questions. For instance, giving examples of sample output from software and then asking questions about that and having them select the correct response. Of course, ideally with smaller groups, having them write out explanations and interpretations rather than just having multiple choice. But we don't just have to have, say, a set of problems where we go through formulas and come up with p-values uh, and confidence units. Active learning. Um, well, I, I, one thing I would often do is try to collect data the first or second day of class with a survey, uh, maybe even try to get the students involved with uh, deciding what we want to find out about each other and to formulate questions that are a little more difficult these days. We have to worry about confidentiality issues, but it's nice if you can have examples in class, even based on on them and some things that they might be interested in to illustrate some of the ideas. In recent years, I taught a, a course in the fall up at Harvard to some psychology undergraduates, about 50 or 60 students. And, and there, having a smaller class, I had everyone become part of a team, two or three students, halfway through the semester, uh, develop a, an idea for a project, go out and collect some data from fellow students on something that interested them. Um, prepare a poster, you know, a large poster board with some graphics and, and a summary of what they did, uh, summarizing the analyses, and then uh, we'd have a couple of extra classes, two, two, about half the students in each, uh, with these teams giving short presentations of what they did. The students found it interesting, and I think it made everything more relevant. Also, you can try to, if you have a particular interesting data set you can draw on throughout the course, uh, you can show various aspects of an analysis throughout the course with that data set and uh, show how different things they learn about can tell more as you go through the course. 
now, there have been some nice resources in recent years for showing activities you can do in a classroom, a book, for instance, by a colleague of mine, Dick Schaefer, on activity-based statistics. Uh, and a variety of things you can do, and one thing I would often do, especially with social science students, is have them go to the website for the General Social Survey, which is uh, administered, uh, probably sample administered every couple of years to a couple thousand Americans, where people ask all sorts of things. And uh, either pick a response variable and ask them to go get online and find something that's associated with that of interest, and maybe a meaningful association, or have them just go out and find some some variables themselves. So for this particular website, if you haven't seen this, you can just go to the this website at Berkeley and uh, there's a there's a code book where you can look at all the various variables there are. Here this morning I just picked a couple. One, you know, do you believe in heaven? Uh, is there a difference between males and females? And I'm just looking at the survey from 2008. And you can do various things like uh, have some summary statistics and then just just basically uh, construct a contingency table for those variables. And uh, here, for instance, is the percentage breakdown and belief in heaven for females and males. And we see this in effect, more than we expect. I asked them to include, and they now do, something they call a, uh, a Z statistic with color coding. This Z statistic, just each cell, takes this observed count, compares it to what you'd expect if there were no effect of the distribution identical for females and males, and divides by a standard error. It's something like an approximately normal Z statistic under the hypothesis of no, no effect. So for instance, this says uh, for males, the, the number of the 319 people who think, yes, definitely there is heaven, is about seven standard errors less than you'd expect to see if heaven, depending on heaven, had nothing to do with, with sex. So it tells them, for instance, a little bit more than something like an overall chi-squared statistic which of course you'll be looking at at a later stage in the test. So anyway, they can just uh, either find some variables on their own or maybe try to find some explanatory variables for a response that you predict and just start to look at data and think about associations. Uh, applets are useful for explaining sampling distributions. I'll show you an example of that in a couple of minutes. And various things you can do through a class to try to get them to think about issues. I remember when I used to do uh, is uh, when we're getting significance testing in 0.05 and sort of a sacred level for a, for a cutoff point. I, I, I bring up a hypothetical situation where you're running a clinical trial and comparing a placebo to a new drug, and you want to see is, is the drug better than placebo? Well, maybe it's worse. You know, what happens is you see one observation, two observations, three observations, and tell them, well, you know, the first person we look at, the placebo was better. Well, the second person, the placebo was better. The third person, the placebo was better. And how far do you have to go until they believe, they think they're pretty confident, not a good idea to use this drug, project hypothesis of equal chance of success with drug and placebo. Typical response would be five. Okay. Five times in a row seeing placebo, they don't trust that drug. Well, the p value for that, one half to the fifth power in one direction, that's 132nd, about 0.03. 0.06 in two directions, about a 0.05. Is what it takes to, to get people to start being skeptical about a null hypothesis. And then also, uh, ideally, at some stage, have them uh, you know, do, do a literature search or read an article in a journal and just think about all the various issues that, that are relevant. They can start to progress through this type of course. 
Now, one of the first times I used an activity, um, and of course, just from a sort of pet peeve of my own, uh, and watching basketball games in the U.S., you often hear commentators talking about a player being hot if they make four shots in a row or something. And you realize people don't really realize how random this behaves. So first day of class, I asked them, go home, flip a coin 50 times, you know, come back with results. I say, hey, I think I'm wasting your time. Just fake it if you want. You know, write down what you think you get. Quickly, bring you the results. And I look at them when they brought it back the next day. I could pretty much say who faked and who didn't. Because even with a even with a 50 coin flips, you expect to see about five heads in a row at some stage. Uh, you, you know, the, the number, how long the runs are, is bigger than expecting for small sample sizes. And, and can help explain it. Randomness is maybe a little different than they expect. Some things where they think they see a pattern could just be random variability. Um, in Florida, we typically use some really easy to use software such as SPSS or Minitab for the computations uh, pretty much right from the start so that they're not worried about doing things by hand and uh, only need. Uh, he, as I mentioned earlier, only showing formulas that are really needed, and particularly not showing the Forza formulas that used to be so prevalent in so many books. Always also bringing up what happens if type questions. For instance, with one of the outputs that's available, we can have a scatter plot, just physically move one of the data points to make it an outlier and, and see the effect on the correlation or the slope. And just think about how unusual observations could affect the results. And really get students in the habit right from the beginning of looking at uh, looking at the data, looking at graphics, not only more complicated methods, and time I learn a lot often just by looking at the data. Here's an example I often showed students way back in uh, 2000, you know, we had this really controversial presidential election where uh, although uh, Al Gore got the majority of votes in the U.S. because of our electoral college system, he didn't win the election. The key state was Florida. Uh, Whoever won Florida would get the majority of electoral votes. And uh, when the Supreme Court uh, stopped the counting, uh, George Bush was ahead by 500 votes, so he won the election. Um, but uh, that first day, uh, people, many people in Palm Beach County were complaining that the ballot that was used there. It was very confusing. Uh, it had this butterfly style where, where several people said they, they wanted to vote for Gore, but they worried that they voted instead for a third party candidate, Pat Buchanan. And it's got a lot of attention in the press. Uh, when the data were available after a day or two, I, I just plotted the, the number of votes Buchanan got in that election versus the corresponding third party candidate four years earlier, Ross Perot. And you see it follows a straight line pretty well, except for Palm Beach County, where uh, looks like Buchanan got a couple thousand votes more than you would have thought he would get. And if those were really intended for Al Gore, that made all the difference in the election. How you feel? What difference will have in the next several years? So, just simple graphics are often useful. What's an applet? Um, well, there, I'll show you one site at Texas a and University that a statistician has set up for a couple of books I was involved in, in, in writing for Prentice Hall. It can illustrate all sorts of. Um, phenomena, sampling distributions, what happens if you repeatedly do significance test or confidence intervals, how error rates behave, and as I mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, the effect of individual points on regression lines or um, um, 
and uh, things like correlation coefficients. So, let's uh, hold this piece up here. This is one of the sampling distributions. You can just go ahead and pick some particular shape of the population, whether it be middle form or bell shape or skewed, or even customary. You can say, hey, we've got some you know, really weird population. <laughs> You know, let's see what happens when we, when we take samples. So, uh, let's start with uniform. This is uniform from 0 to 50. You can start off saying, I'm going to take a sample of two people. You know, there they are. There's the observations, and there's the sample mean. It's uh, uh, 31, and uh, the population mean is 25, so not so close. And, uh, you know, you can do that. Uh, you can say, what happens if everyone's going out and taking a sample of a couple people and then we look at uh, all their sample means here's the last sample collected and here's what happens with all the sample means hey it's not uniform uh, well to be down here for the mean you've got to have two observations on this end and to be up here you've got to have two observations on this end but to be in the middle there's lots of combinations you know both in the middle are one low one high so it's piling up in the middle and that's starting to suggest the central limit theorem and and then you can pick various uh, sample sizes, like here now sample size. What happens if we take samples of size 50? If many, many people are doing that, their sample means would fluctuate around uh, quite narrowly around the population mean. And you can show these distributions getting narrower and increases and, and how it becomes more bell-shaped, even for very skewed distributions. And I guess actually I usually would do this first with binary cases, like. Uh, 10% of the population feels a certain way. What happens if we take take uh, samples? It's, it's easier for them to visualize that when you talk about a particular issue. So, so that can be useful, I think, for illustrating some of the basic concepts that are so crucial for them to understand uh, inference. There's now a lot of stuff on the internet for those who just didn't start teaching statistics. I've listed a few of them here. For instance, I, I just noticed a couple of days ago in a journal called Technology Innovations and in Statistics Education, there's an article online in the print issue about using applets to help students understand. I haven't had a chance to read that article. I don't know how good it is, but there's a lot of stuff out there, including data archives, if you just want to maybe find some more interesting data to use in your courses. Things to de-emphasize, and some of these are things that were in stat books back when I started teaching, and are still in some of them. Many books, when they first talk about inference, say, hey, let's look at the case when we know the population standard deviation of sigma. And they do that, I think, so they can just use the z-test because students are already familiar with the normal distribution, not the t. And that's so artificial. We don't have time for artificial things. And, you know, I, I think it's a bad, bad idea to be dealing with situations that are completely unrealistic. And if you want to stick with this a, do inference out of proportion first. I think that's better to do anyway because it's easier to visualize what's going on and with inference about a proportion bar using normal sampling distributions, not the t. The t never occurs for proportion data. Don't just emphasize significance tests, more on confidence intervals, and that's easier to do right after talking about sampling distributions. The students have a sense of what a margin of error means by then. And you go right from the margin of error discussion to confidence intervals. Uh, a lot of students get hung up on should I do a one-sided test or two-sided test. Why not just completely eliminate one-sided tests? And generally, you can see two-sided p-values in journals, and that corresponds with what you're doing with confidence intervals. 
uh, if we have a feeling that reality is in a particular direction, we may need to report a two-sided p-value to satisfy a journal editor. Probability used to take up a lot of time, and in my experience, that's where a lot of students would tune out, and I'd really get lost. Ways of counting combinations and permutations, Bayes rule, and so on, continuity corrections for the uh, using the normal for the binomial, lots of different probability distributions. We now cover very little probability, namely just the normal distribution, because of its use as a sampling distribution in inference. Uh, like there's one other thing I want to mention in a minute. Um, De-emphasize strict frequency interpretations. We used to be always taught to explain to students, when you get a confidence interval, it doesn't mean there's a 95% chance that that interval will change the parameter. It means that if you use that method over and over and over again, in the long run, 95% of the time you capture the parameter. Don't say the probability is 0.95, the view is between here and here. And yet, strictly, that is correct if you're afraid of this. Of course, if you're amazing and you get probability statements to parameters, that's exactly what you would say. And I think that's the way most people tend to think. That's really the way they will interpret a confidence interval no matter what you say. That the probability is 0.95 of the parameters in their region. So don't, don't get upset about that. Uh, I tend to focus on the standard parametric methods that are pretty robust. Two-sided versions of the standard inferences like two-sample t-test are work pretty well regardless of uh, distributions in the population. I, we also tend to Lead dependent samples like for, for later courses, so I'll explain what they are, what they are, and they're out there. Some assumptions and conditions you need to explain to students aren't really all that important. You know, some statistician had to make them to derive the exact formula for that method. Some are important, some are not. Um, and then some of the important concepts that you think should be in there but are difficult. Maybe try to teach them at a lower technical level using a simplified approach. And, for me, conditional probability, in my experience, is a really tough thing for students to get. It's so important you know, to understand what conditional probability is. Uh, a, a typical homework problem where students would be expected to use Bayes formula, something like this, uh, in a criminal justice setting, uh, every time someone is guilty, the chance of convicted is 0.9. If they're not guilty, the chance of acquitted is 0.9. That sounds pretty good. Then suppose that 10% of the people are actually guilty, you convict someone, what's the chance they really are guilty? So you have something of the form P of A given B, you want P of B given A, and there's that base formula for doing it, which we just don't use anymore. We either, we just try to get them to think about what this means, either through a contingency table, where you can say, hey, let's do a typical, typical 100 trials. You know, 10 of 10 percent of the time people are guilty, 90 percent of the time they're not. And, and those who are guilty, 90 percent of the time they're convicted, those are innocent, 90% of the time they're acquitted. So those are the conditional probabilities in this direction, but then we climb up in the other direction. Conditional on being convicted, what's the chance they're guilty? About one half. Of course, you can show that changes dramatically according to what your assumption is about the, the probability of guilt. Or you could just go through a tree diagram and say, here's our 100 typical trials, and, and 10 of those 100 people are um, 10 people are guilty, perhaps, and, and of them, you know, 90% of the time they're convicted, and the ones who aren't guilty, 90% of the time they're acquitted. But then look at all the convictions, and again, about half the time, they truly are uh, guilty. So just trying to think about reasoning like this is probably more useful, I think, than uh, trying to use uh, the base formula. I generally try to get students to think about 
inference right from the beginning was everything we model. Don't wait till you get to regression to talk about models. In everything we do, there's certain, a certain structure that's just a real simplification of reality that we don't really believe that can be useful. If we're doing a two-sample t-test comparing two means, well, for that formula, truly to all, we have observations that ran from some normal distribution with some mean and then other independent observations that ran from another normal distribution. That model's not correct. You know, we, there's all sorts of ways that went wrong. Some ways may be more important than others. And but models are useful if they're at all plausible. And uh, uh, we want to summarize maybe masses of data by two or three numbers uh, and try to explain them just what is important and what isn't. So for instance, in this case, no big deal if the population's not bell-shaped. You know, essentially, when it takes over, you've got a reasonable size sample. Of course, what is important, if you look at the data so highly skewed that the mean is misleading, then you don't want to do this. But otherwise, that that's, has little relevance compared to how important it is to, to collect good data. So students come into the course thinking to get, get these firm rules. And somehow, they have to realize by the end of the course that statistics is not quite that simple. Kind of different from math, and uh, uh, you know, everything involves approximation. Any assumptions we make are violated, and as they get more and more mature, they just have a sense of what is important and, and what sorts of approximations there are. And uh, you know, one of the books I wrote ended up calling the art and science of learning from data, just trying to show students that there can be various ways of approaching data. It really is a bit of art as well as science, and uh, hopefully, there's some detective work and. Uh, the particular data set can often lead to other questions that, that can be resolved with later research. Um, we, in our course, try to spend a fair amount of time on categorical data because you know, most of the students aren't going to go out and do research. Uh, they're probably never going to see a standard deviation referred to on the internet or read the paper uh, or correlation with slope. They aren't going to see proportions. They aren't going to hear about margins of errors. Uh, so in the library case, just don't do scatter plots, but also contingency tables. When you talk about sampling distributions, I find it easier to explain that anyway for proportions than for, for means of quantitative variables. Don't forget about simple descriptive measures. It's easy for students just to get in the habit of always thinking you've got to do something high-powered, like a chi-square test, but show them how they can learn from simple summary measures. And don't just do something like chi-square, but we want to know more than is their association. We want to know the nature of the association, as I showed you earlier, by doing something like looking at uh, standardized residuals to see which cells have more people than independents would predict, and which cells have uh, fewer people than, than independents would predict. And is there, uh, in some sense, a strong evidence of that? Again, this is just another take from the General Social Survey. Uh, Especially in a graduate level, of course, I really don't want them to think statistics is just this toolkit they've got to master. And you know, I, I tell them how I started teaching the course in 1972. I didn't even know what a chi-square test was. You know, my PhD research was in uh, probability theory and stochastic modeling. And I went to Florida and started teaching courses and talking to friends in sociology who were asking me about Leo Goodman and his papers. And you know, I started doing research myself in categorical data. But things, most of what I do now wasn't around back then, 30 years ago. And, and during their careers, they're going to keep seeing new things being developed if they are active in research. And they have to continually be learning about new methods and uh, seeing new types of data. 
the whole area of survival analysis involved since I got my PhD is applied in various ways now, including in social sciences, uh, how long until someone retires or is divorced or whatever. In a graduate level course, in my experience, most students these days have had the undergraduate course. A lot of them come with that negative attitude that they didn't like it or they don't remember much. So we used to start from scratch right in that course also, but just go at a quicker pace, putting strong emphasis on regression in the second course in particular in the context of a generalized linear model where there are different types of regression models depending on whether you have a continuous response or binary response or whatever. Uh, but for putting them all in the same framework, um, you can then talk more about uh, Florida, we probably do a lot of this at the undergraduate level, like that, and go directly to what's in the journals that they're going to be reading, for example, and, and motivation. And then we are really training many of them to go out and do their own research and analyze data. So it's a bit different focus than the large undergraduate course. Uh, but even then, again, you know, we realize that you know, they're not going to be a statistician for a course or two. There's just a huge amount of stuff out, stuff out there. I mean, that, have an active learning strategy from now on. Well, while I was teaching, as I mentioned in the early days, the courses were focused on books that were kind of largely watered down mathematical statistics courses, but there's been a bit of revolution. In particular, there were a couple of books that came out uh, by an author of Purdue, David Moore, and some people at Berkeley, who focused more on conceptual ideas rather than the whole technical details. And, those had a big effect in the U.S. You know, I, I, I try to do some of this myself. I have, uh, uh, I'll pass these around in case some of you are interested in seeing them. There's this social science book that uh, Steve mentioned that I, I first wrote back in the late 70s. Um, and then this heavy book, I'll be glad not to take my luggage back to the U.S. <laughs> in the later suitcase, but it's uh, just sort of geared towards the undergraduate uh, general course. And, uh, sort of book like the more frequent design of purpose. Um, so my experience there, when I first started teaching this basic course for social sciences in 1972, there was a standard book by Hubert Blaylock. Anyone ever see that book? Yeah, a really important book, and you know, a very, very good book in a lot of ways. He was University of Washington, and uh, very highly regarded, I think, back then. Uh, a tough book for students to understand, but I looked at all the alternatives. And I couldn't believe how bad most of them were. You know, for hypothesis testing, for instance, for H0, for comparing two means, instead of mu1 equal mu2, I think things like x bar 1 equal x bar 2. You know, not even a distinction between a sample and a population. Or for a single sample, x bar equal mu0 or something. So, you know, I, I reviewed some of these books for the German American Statistical Association. It was, it was kind of bad, so I ended up trying to write my own book, which was probably kind of silly in 1979, because I didn't know that much back then. But uh, I did that with uh, my wife at the time, who's a sociologist, and I uh, went on and revised it a few times. And if any of you are interested, I've got some PowerPoints that I created a couple of years ago for teaching an undergraduate course at Harvard from that book, where I you know, tried to put into to practice some of the things I've talked about today. They're not at all fancy. I had used PowerPoint before, and I didn't try to incorporate a lot of the graphics, which I still have drawn board, but uh, anyway, that was my attempt to try to do some of this. Uh, and I use my social statistics book for, for that. So in the U.S., I think that social science book probably is more at the graduate level, a little bit at the undergraduate level. And this, this bigger book I wrote, that's focusing on the 
you know, the, the large undergraduate market. So they used that in Florida for the two college student course, for instance. And then in that book, The Art and Science of Learning from Data, that sort of shows from its outline, you know, how we try to approach this. We start off showing them data immediately. You know, get some data, look at, look at the data with graphs, look at numerical summaries, and look at more than one variable immediately. Contingency tables, scatter plots. This is quite talked about uh, much in the way of um, no, no inference at this stage, really, just looking at the data and thinking about questions. You know, then you can talk about some of the issues. How do you get good data? How do you design a good, good study? Uh, and then we get to what we need in probability, which, as I said, is mainly just a normal distribution because we would like to normal as a sampling distribution. Focus on that. Going right from that into confidence intervals using the margin of error idea. Before uh, significant tests, we find it easier to do confidence intervals first, and then that gives it its proper importance, I think. And then the rest of the course, the various sorts of ways they'll see these methods used, comparing two proportions or two means, uh, association, contingency tables, uh, this regression analysis uh, at the end of the course, and then the next course uh, extending all that to a lot more detail and uh, generalization. So thanks to all of you for listening to me for the last 45 minutes. Uh, I actually retired from the University of Florida a couple of years ago, so I, <laughs> you're all facing something I'm not facing anymore. I can't remove from this, but I still think about it a lot, partly from writing these books, and um, you know, it's just something that's interested me tremendously over the years, just how to try to convey what we think is so important and love you know, to students who don't tend to think that way and are taking this course. So.